temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. Hi, it's Rashma Sajani, the founder and CEO of Girls Who Code, and you're listening to an episode of Brave Not Perfect. On this podcast, I'll talk to up-and-coming changemakers who are leaving their fear of failure behind and letting bravery lead the way. Each week, you'll hear from another incredible person who is using their skills and talents to make a difference in their community and about the moments where they decided to be brave, not perfect. This week, I'm talking to Robin Arzon, the Vice President of Fitness Programming at Peloton, a tech company that's revolutionizing at-home fitness. If you take Robin's classes on the bike or the treadmill, you'll never guess that she left a successful law career. You, like me, I would say I'm like a recovering lawyer. (laughs) Yes. So my mother reminds me every day about how much money I spent for my legal degree that I do not use right now. <laughs> I'm going to introduce her to you. So why did you decide to practice law? And what did you do while you were there? I was a corporate litigator at Paul Hastings my entire career. And I left in my eighth year. You lasted for eight years there? And I was a summer associate. Wow. At that law firm. I wasn't actually... My narrative wasn't, I hate law. It was, mm. I love other things more. Mm. And I think a lot of people live at 50% yeah. of a happiness quotient, yeah. however we define that. And that's not good enough. I don't settle in any other area of my life, so I certainly wasn't going to settle there. I was drawn to law because my father was an attorney, and I loved kind of the intellectual rigor of solving problems and marrying facts to storytelling. I was always drawn to that and the power of story. And lawyers certainly know how to weave that yeah. effectively. Um, and as a litigator, I was able to kind of be drawn to really complex business problems that I that I was never exposed to growing up. So I think that that, that yeah. really kept me going for, for as long as I did. So was it that one day you were, was it, were you for most of those eight years living at 100% and then one day you're like, I only like this half as much? Or were, did you feel like there you were feeling that way most of the time you were there, you just had the courage to leave at the end? No, you know, I think my departure was a slow two-year process. Mm. I think most people who have experienced a career change, very few of them, Yes. identify with Jerry Maguire and yeah. like throwing things across their boss's <laughs> desk. You know, it's 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 an iterative process, yeah. just like success is circuitous. It certainly was a slow journey. And I say that my I ran right out of a law career. So I ran my first mile when I was in law school and I ran my first marathon when I was at my law firm. And then I ran my first ultra marathon and kind of as my love for sport and movement and sweat increased, I realized, wow, like if I can monetize this, I'm changing the game. Yeah. Um, so I really had to redefine how, 
redefine my own success and kind of uncheck all the boxes and create my own. Well, I always tell people, I always tell our girls, like, don't follow money. Money will follow you when you're happy. Without right? question. It's like something I say over and over and over again, but you're like living proof of that. So where did this kind of sense of like, I'm not going to settle for 50% come from? Was there an experience? Was it? Well, I've always been extremely driven. I was never, you know, sort of the kid who needed to be pushed to get A's in school. And I think that my parents are a huge example of that. They literally created themselves. My mother put herself through medical school, my father through law school. And really, they, they didn't, they created themselves truly from nothing and that having the, that, that powerful example and I know you have the same yeah. you, you really you no. don't take that lightly no um, they don't let you take it lightly they don't let you take it lightly exactly but honestly it's my it's it's my honor to carry on their story but I really saw myself as as a change agent in my own life when I was taken hostage um, I was in my last year at NYU and this man just came into a bar and and it was I mean it was literally like wrong place wrong time. And I became the pseudo negotiator with the police during this experience. And I just the refrain in my mind was this is not my story. This is not my story. My mother is not going to get a phone call tomorrow that that I died in the East Village. at 21 years old. So thankfully, everybody survived. um, And I woke up kind of existentially uh, um, the next morning, kind of like, okay, what do I do now? Now, this is like... This is after... This is like while well, you're finishing... Before law school. Senior year. Before law school. Right. And, I was, and I had already applied to law school. I already yeah. knew I was going to law school the following year. But, you know, I think awakenings are often a slow burn. Mm. Like, it's not like, you know, you have this aha moment and then you... Sometimes it's an aha moment, but oftentimes they're just like little tiny awakenings. Um, either it's... Yeah. That you kind re- of revisit later in your life. Yeah. Well... I see it on both sides of the spectrum. Like I kind of felt like law was death by a thousand paper cuts. And I thought my awakening was every mile I picked up a little bit more power. Every mile I healed a little bit more. Every beat of sweat was another way that I owned my space in the world. And I think physical power translates leaps and bounds into the, I think energy is currency. Yeah. And I think the, the way that, that, that our physical power in the world and taking up space and being unapologetic about it, it really transformed how I, how I, me as an actor in this universe. Yeah, it's funny. I'm like getting over, uh, I'm putting to rest a certain chapter of my life and I signed up for a marathon. And I Amazing. ran a marathon. I signed up for a half marathon. But that was my first thing. Like I think to get like mentally strong, you have to get physically strong. Without you question. Know? And, and that's my always go-to place too when I'm trying to make like a transition in my life mm-hmm. is like to go back to like my health. Because if you feel like you're strong and you feel like mentally you can actually handle so much more. Yeah. Um, well, it is the mental game. So your parents, Puerto Rican, Cuban, yep. men are Indian refugees. So when you told them that you were leaving the law, were they like, were you terrified of telling them? Were they happy for you? Or was it was it was it something that you were nervous about or no? Um, I'm a, I'm an extremely strong personality, so yeah. no, I wasn't nervous. Yeah, I. They've always trusted my own judgment, um, and they raised me to be a powerhouse. So when I say I'm going to do something, I do it, and there's not really convincing me otherwise. So thankfully, they really did see my passion and see my my vision, even though I didn't know necessarily know where I was going next. I knew I had a skill set. I knew I had a network that I could leverage in some way. And honestly, it was like, okay, well, you're jumping off the cliff, so you're going to build wings on the way down, so figure it out. <laughs> you know. So I also wasn't going to them for any help, but I also, and in, in turn, they were they were supporting me knowing that I would just have to create my own path. 
Was fitness always part of your life? Were you always running? Were you always no. working out? I literally ran my first mile when I was in law school. Really? Yes. What? Tell me, walk me back to that moment. Well, this was just after, about a year after my hostage experience. And yeah. I still felt, obviously, you, you, you retain, your body retains a lot of that trauma. And of course, mentally, you do, you do as well. And I felt the need to physically run it out. Um, a pair of running shoes was my salvation more than why a, running out of all like why not boxing? you know it was ex- it was accessible right I had running shoes that probably weren't even running shoes I mean yeah. I don't even know they were like 10 year old shoes yeah. that were just in my closet and I was curious and really uninformed I think I, I did I ran my first 10k with no clue how far <laughs> that was in miles and I just showed up and I did it and sometimes that ignorance is bliss in that regard yeah. that you're just like okay I'm gonna go for it and then you're not a quitter so you're not gonna stop yeah right? and then I fell in love with it you know um, I got better I got physically stronger at my endurance in- increased and I was and then I was introduced to the running community which is very welcoming so it was a perfect storm so now you are not then you became a fitness instructor. Now you're basically the head of a major fitness company. Like, tell me about that. That was also an iterative process. I I became a spin instructor when I was, or I got my spin certification when I was still a lawyer simply because I wanted to understand the science behind something that I enjoyed. I enjoyed going to spin as much as I enjoyed running. And I started teaching at a local studio near Union Square. Mm. And this was after I, I left law. And it was really just like, I loved it. I loved the community. I loved the feeling of being in the room and listening to the music. And then I read an article about John Foley, I think in Fast Company, a sm- tiny blurb. And I was like, okay, this is, this is how we're about to change the game. So I emailed him directly. I think I was in the office the next week. And I was the third instructor hired. At Pelton? Yes. Wow. <laughs> the rest is kind of history. And then what is the rest? Oh, man. Um, that's like asking the Avengers what, <laughs> what their plan is. I mean, literally global domination. Um, I, I believe so strongly in the brand and all the facets of the brand. It's not just that we have the best hardware on the planet and the smartest engineers and the best, the best instructors in the world. I think we really we have the privilege of going into people's homes and transforming their relationship with movement. Yeah. And I think that's what keeps people coming back. It's also community, and there is such an element of seeing people, whether it's their first ride or they're very serious athletes, step into power in a very different way. So, you know, obviously we spend our lives, well, I spend my life teaching girls to code, and we (laughs) talk to them about how every industry is being disrupted by technology, and even industries that you don't think about, like fashion or fitness. So how is Peloton being disrupted by technology or how is it disrupting the fitness world through its technology? Well, it's, I think it's the accessibility piece. Mm-hmm. We have two amazing pieces of hardware, our bike and our tread. And now we've just recently launched Peloton Digital, which makes all of our content accessible to anyone with an iPhone and very soon Android. And I think when you have an abundance of choice, I mean, you can literally download any app, go to any YouTube channel, Google even, 20-minute workout, and yeah. you're going to get a million results. Yeah. But it's not going to be at the caliber or with the intention that you're going to be rooted in community and keep coming back because there are people rooting for you. So how does it work? I have my app. I have my Peloton bike at home. What happens? That's a great combination because on the Peloton bike, of course, you have access to yeah. our, ten, I think, 9,000-plus uh, cycling classes. And a great additive is 
the digital. So you can go running with me outdoors. You can do a five minute stretch when you're off your bike, when you're traveling, you can dip into our yoga programming. You can grab a pair of dumbbells and do one of our boot camp classes. And it literally is having a trainer in your home. Um, as, as an athlete, I use that to train. Yeah. So I know that it works because I'm the strongest. Cause you've you ever been. just want to go, go for a run with somebody. Right. And they're like, not in your city or town or whatever. And now you can have that experience. Like, I really want to go for a run with you on my phone. That'd be cool. I'm in your ear. There's no excuses. Amazing. I need it <laughs> as I'm like training for my half. I'd be happy to go running with you or any, any of your listeners. <laughs> Done. You know, so much of what we do at Girls Who Code is really f- talk about sisterhood. You know, we have girls from all walks of life that like come together in classrooms and just like make and build magical things together. And then oftentimes then they go into spaces that are pretty male, pretty white, Mm. and they feel alone. And so building a sense of community has been so important for them to like stick with their dreams. Like how does that resonate for you? I've seen Peloton mushroom, but never lose the pulse of what got it started, which I think was one person riding seemingly alone but never alone never ride alone is is something that I have the privilege of being in somebody's living room (laughs) from New York City they might be in California they might be in Iowa and that connection is real when I first joined Peloton I was like oh man am I going to lose that connection with my riders am I going to lose that real world moment where you feel the endorphins and you're just like yes we just did that and it it's scaled magnificently and if you look at the variety of our Facebook groups and conversations on Twitter and a whole slew of platforms, you see that moms joining together, yeah. outdoor cyclists joining together. You see college students who will go, you know, to their to wherever they have access to a bike, writing me every day, posting about their workout every day, and it carries into every other area of their life, right? So not to say that every person who takes my ride is going to then quit their job and then become, you know, an athlete, but they're definitely going to be stronger for it and in, in whatever it is does yeah. make up their day. It's so true. I mean, I've, I've also been exercising since I was young, but I think for a lot of, I have a lot of friends who like have really not done anything until they're 40 and then they're scared. And so I think having a sense of community where in some ways you can be in your own living room, right? You can like ride a bike so you don't feel judged, but then you have people with you so you feel like you're not alone. It's kind of like the best of both worlds for people who might feel a little intimidated by, by, by fitness when they're, if they're starting for the first time. It, it can be really intimidating and I think when you see that most people are intimidated by it. Like yeah. most people, when they try a new class for the first time, even if they're confident, like they might be the most confident person in, yeah. you know, collaborating on, on code, but then you go to like a Pilates class and you're like, I don't know how to do this. Oh my God. You know? Like me every day in <laughs> yoga class, I'm like... Mm. And, but like all we ask at Peloton is your best in that moment. And it's not going to be the same as yesterday and it won't be the same as tomorrow. And I approach my own training like that. And every instructor is so genuinely passionate about their riders feeling supported. Um, And members create relationships with each other. And that keeps them coming back. It's not about one singular experience. It's about the fact that you you really didn't buy a bike or buy a tread or download an app. You joined a family. Yeah. I call like my riders my wolf pack. Fitness is a completely different experience today. It shocks me how many like of my 20-year-old women will go broke trying to pay for, you know what I mean, a soul cycle class or a Peloton class or like, right. you know what I mean, berries. It's a lifestyle. It's not just about weight loss. Why, what is that? What's happening in our world today that people are looking to exercise or to fitness to find some salvation? 
I don't believe it's ever been about weight loss. I think when someone feels that they're part of something that then maybe selfishly makes them feel good or maybe their bodies do change, certainly their minds change, mm. That that's the real crux of the situation, right? I think it's someone saying, I can do a 30-minute spin class or I can do a 45-minute boot camp and then go about my day and I can deal with my toddler's tantrums a little bit easier. I can yeah. deal with my college professor a little easier. I can deal with my partner a little easier because that kernel of confidence doesn't go away. Mm. Um, and I do believe that that willpower is a muscle that we exercise every single day, yeah. figuratively, I guess. And so you think that they're gaining something in that experience that like is helping them be feel strong and build confidence that they're taking with them for the rest of their day or their week? Yes, without question. Without question, you cannot buy it. You discovered running in your late 20s, right? Yes, early 20s. Early 20s. What would you tell little girls today like to get them into fitness? I was intimidated at first. I think the inner voice or the inner conversation is the most powerful one that we have. And when you tell yourself, I can't, I won't, historically I haven't, then you're stuck. You might as well just reframe that story and see what's possible because I really believe that the most successful people, they do not fear failure. They fear mediocrity and I fear mediocrity and I would hope that young people fail bigger. Did your parents teach you that? Did their experience coming here as immigrants teach them that? It's certainly been an example but I've taught myself. Mm -hmm. I firmly stepped into power in my early 20s and not say, I mean I've fallen on my face plenty of times but my spine is straighter. I have a strong backbone. How do you tell women to do the same thing? How do they do that? How do they step into their own power? Celebrate the small victories. No goal is too small. I think sometimes we, we think, oh, I'm starting this fitness journey or I'm starting this professional journey and my goal needs to be CEO. Or the, you know, and those are great aspirational goals, but start with the small victory. Maybe the victory tomorrow is you sent your resume to someone that you didn't even think would look at it. Yeah. And a lot of, you're going to have to, accept a lot of no's before you get the right yes. Yeah. I feel like we live in such a, like a success culture that we're on. I do this, right? I'm on to the next thing and right. the next thing and the next thing. And I don't take a minute to celebrate. Well, that, look what just happened. I, can, know, I can relate. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I like, can relate. like, oh my God, like I'm in North Carolina with 500 girls and co-girls and like, right, we're changing lives. I think it's like discipline, right? Or like, as you say, like it's like a muscle you have to exercise to be like, celebrate the wins. And it is on a daily basis. Yeah. Western culture tends to gravitate towards these seemingly overnight success stories. None of it's overnight. Yeah. I mean, it's like 10 years in the making to get the one meeting or the one opportunity that then now you're being written about. Yeah. Tarana Burke, you know, founder of Me Too movement. She was doing that work for nine, ten, a decade. And when you when you peel back, yeah. you know, the, the second layer of the onion, there's yeah. always that person who's just like, yeah. oh, no, but really, I was hustling in my basement or I was right. 600 people said no. You know, I think right. John Foley in interviews about Peloton, he mentions how hundreds of people said yeah. no when he was looking for initial investments. Yeah. And here we are. You yeah. know, it's it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it comes from a place of privilege when they normally say yes right away. So, you know, this podcast is called Brave Not Perfect. You know, I have a book about bravery coming out in February, and I definitely struggled with perfectionism for so much of my life. I wanted to be the good girl, you know what I mean, the good immigrant daughter, go to mm. all the right schools. And, you know, I think I f forgot what was important to me until I actually failed miserably and I didn't die. <laughs> so, like, what's that moment for you? Ooh, um, 
You know, I always, for me, I associate it with racing. I'm very proud of my professional accomplishments, but there's nothing more raw than being an ultra marathoner and um, or a marathoner and not getting the time that you that you train for for over a year. So those are the moments that I feel like, oh, what was it all for, mm-hmm. right? And somebody can relate. It's like, oh, the, the hours learning to code or the yeah, hours, yeah. you know, you know, collaborating on a project or, or certainly a startup that doesn't work. Like it, the parallels are the same because all the miles that I put out. I learned so much more from the tough training runs and the tough races. And I have to remind myself that even if I don't get, you know, a Boston qualifying time at the New York Marathon, you know, these right. things that are important to runners. But really, that's when I had to take a step back and think like, am I only doing this for that accolade? Yeah. Am I only doing this to be able to post on Instagram that I got this time? And it's like, no, I love this. It nourishes me. And I extrapolate that to every other area of my life. Well, thank you, Robin. Thank you for having me. This was great. First of all, I wish you could have seen her because she was like a badass in person. Um, I think it's really amazing that you can fall in love with something that you dedicate your life to like later in your life. The fact that she ran her first mile when she was 20 and the fact that she did it as a way to kind of to get her story back and to reclaim it for herself, I thought was really powerful. I think a lot of us, I do the same thing I think with my with running or with fitness is that when I'm in a place where I need to kind of, I don't know, uh, refine myself or get strong, it's, it's my go-to. And uh, so I thought that she was amazing. Tune in every week for even more inspiring conversations about leaving insecurity and fear behind and stepping up to change the world. Be sure to let me know what you think by sending us a voice message on the Anchor app or emailing us at bravenotperfectpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at bravenotperfectpod. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at Sajani. Until next time, keep practicing bravery every chance you get, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>